Today on Focal Point, author and Bible teacher, Pastor Mike Fabares discusses politics and faith. Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drury. Today we'll hear Pastor Mike Fabares address the controversial topic of politics. Here at Focal Point, we aren't afraid to talk about difficult topics like money, religion, or even politics. So if you have a controversial question of your own, send it to Pastor Mike at focalpointradio.org. And right now we're joining Pastor Mike and Focal Point's Executive Director, Jay Wharton, inside the Pastor's Study for a timely edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Jay? Thank you, Dave. Pastor Mike, let's get right to it. We spent some time last week talking about a Christian's responsibility to obey the government, and even when they're bad, but I wanted to continue that conversation along a different line. Is it the responsibility of a Christian to be actively involved in politics and political activism? Well, there is that negative sense, and I think we should clarify that perhaps in a way that we didn't last time, and that is that there is a kind of activism that disobeys and clearly disobeys the government. And the only allowance for that, I understand in Scripture, is when the government is telling me to in some way disobey God. Therefore, I'll disobey the government when my obedience to that government is going to make me disobedient to Christ. So that needs to be a kind of activism that we're ready to engage in at any time. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to you know, bow down to this idol, they were going to be activists of a sort. They were going to say, we're not going to do it. And we refused to do it. I mean, when Daniel was told not to pray anymore, he opened his windows and he kept on praying. There's a kind of activism in his life. But if you're thinking about the rallies and signs and all of that, I think you need to look at that from a perspective that you would you know, see yourself in any situation of a leader doing something that you don't agree with. And in other words, it may be that at your school, your teacher's, you know, giving too much homework to your kid and it's just unreasonable. You know, you're probably not going to pull out signs and march around in front of the school and, and protest your teacher because you would figure that's probably not the best way to affect change in this situation. And, and so it is that Often there's better ways than the traditional focused kind of gathering with buses and signs to get change affected in our leaders. Thankfully, in our government, we can vote them out and, and vote others in. And, and that you know, is the ultimate kind of activism that's built into our system. So I find oftentimes the very ostentatious displays of I disagree is more of a ranting than a real calculated, thoughtful, what is the best way to go about changing what uh, is repulsive to me as a Christian or repulsive just in general in terms of, of being something unbiblical or unvirtuous or, or immoral or wrong. But that's a kind of activism and there is a place for that. But I do think when you think of activism, you're thinking of a kind of involvement in something that uh, rarely produces what people claim they want produced. Would you classify civil disobedience or boycotting in that avenue? Those are clearly allowable means, according to our government, to be against the politics. But what about for Christians? Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm fine. When you say boycotts, there's a good example. Now you think about commercial boycotts. We're boycotting something because we think that there's something wrong with what they're doing. And, and in some cases, you've got to recognize that Christians are trying to employ 
a set of standards that you would expect in the church on some commercial entity. And I think there's a part of our problem. You know, I, I can't possibly disengage from everything that is sinful or immoral or idolatrous in my commercial exchange of, of my money every week. I just can't do that. It becomes an absurd way to live your life. As Paul put it, I'd, I'd have to leave the world, as he says in 1 Corinthians 5, to avoid that kind of entanglement with my money. And in some sense, people feel they're supporting things that are bad and immoral. And then in some cases, clearly we are. That's part of my being you know, set in a world that is counter to God. I'm going to be spending my money. I'm going to be engaging in, in things or going to restaurants and you know, spending my money at a, at a hotel chain that may stand for things I don't agree with. So you're going to have to get used to that. You know, When it comes to the government, though, as I said last week, when it comes to my taxes and my support and my honor and my prayer for these people, I have to honor them. I have to pay my taxes. I have to support them even when they are doing things I don't agree with. I would say take every advantage that you have as a citizen of the United States of America in particular to do what you can to affect change in those leaders, in those legislators, the congressmen, the governors, the executive branch, all of that to try and see that change affected. We can write letters, we can call our representatives, we can vote in a way that's different and and make let our voice be heard. That's fine. And every Christian should do that as an individual and, and do that in accordance with scriptural principles and, and in accordance with conscience. And that's perfectly fine. I think that's biblical, that's expected. That doesn't turn the church into an activistic political group. And I do think that's a selling out and a stepping down of the high calling we have to engage in something that's much less than what we're called to. We're called to something much greater than being political activists. What else as Christians can we do to affect change in our society and our governments? Well, two primary things the Bible continually repeats. We as Christians are called to pray. And God says that God can affect a lot of radical changes through a praying church and a praying group of Christians. And secondly, we need to go about kingdom work of getting the gospel out to people. We need to call people to repent, put their trust in Christ, believe in the gospel that is going to radically change hearts. God wants to re birth people in the interior of their lives so that they become new people in Christ. You know, if, if people got saved, whatever sins they would commit or crimes they would commit or compromises they would engage in, those would all be increasingly curtailed as they grow in Christ. So there's no better civic improvement process. There's no better political enhancement. There's no better societal transformation than when sinners become saints, when non-Christians become Christians. And so that brings us back to what the church is all about. That's why it would be a, a stooping to a lower calling in the church to become a church that's all about political activism. We need to be about life change. We need to be about the gospel. We need to be about people's hearts being converted, people seeing sin for what it is, and repenting of their sins. Yeah, nobody has any interest in changing their activities unless their heart has changed. Right. They want to do what they want to do. Sure. And it starts with a heart change, and that changes everything, right? That's why the church is a different kind of environment for people than the world, because we are a place where sin is being curtailed, it's being fought against, we're waging war against the passions and desires of our flesh, we're concerned about a whole higher set of responsibilities and accountabilities than the world is. And the more people that join our cause, and through new birth, you know, specifically, the more we see society changed. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I trust that this conversation is very clarifying for our listeners. And we're going to finish up today with a message you gave called Elections, Activism, and Civil Disobedience. 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, I mean, if you want to put it in classic paradigm terms, I mean, it's, it's the state and it's the church, church and state. It's my relationship with God and my relationship with the government. It's being a good Christian, being a good citizen. And those are overlapping spheres that I live in, and I live under both. And Jesus now says, well, there's stuff you've got to render, give, or, or, or defer to Caesar, and then there's things you need to defer to God. And, and that sounds hard, and I want him to explain it, that it's not as hard to figure out as you might think. Because you do this to your kids and you expect them to know intuitively how to live with two authorities in their lives. Put them on a sports team, for instance, just by way of example. My middle kid, 12 years old, John, he's playing again this year on the Little League uh, District 55 All-Star Baseball team. And he's got a coach. And he lives under the authority of the coach. And I don't even have to tell him this because he knows I expect him to be a good player, respectful to the coach, obedient to the coach. When the coach says, run a lap, run a lap, if he says, pitch five more times, you do it. You do what the coach says. You live under the authority of the coach. But then again, here's what he needs to understand and probably never needs to be told, and that is when you're a baseball player on that team, you don't cease to be my son. And my rules and my authority and everything I've taught you does not somehow go away because you're on the baseball team. Now, the baseball team can be a kind of environment that uh, is different than the environment at home, just to drive this point to our point of application. I mean, uh, certainly the government operates with a different set of values and different set of principles than does God's kingdom. So, I mean, they're in conflict at times, and so it is with my kids' baseball team. Uh, for instance, uh, we were, I was dropping him off the other day, and uh, we were running late, and he needed some hydration, and I stopped at the 7-Eleven across from the ball field, and I said, go in and get yourself a, you know, a, some Gatorade, and, and off to the game you'll go. And he said, oh, this is where my... Uh, this is where my coach stops off before the games to get his chewing tobacco. I said, oh, okay, that's great. Now, my coach is a decent baseball coach, but he's not a great model for life for my kid. For instance, chewing tobacco. I've told him, if you chew tobacco, we'll cut your tongue out. I mean, I don't know, we've, <laughs> we've threatened him. This is not good, we don't want you coming home chewing tobacco. And, and I know that his, my kid's coach's language is a lot more colorful than what he'll hear at home. And he knows the rules about profanity, and he knows that that's not, uh, it's not acceptable. I mean, the Bible is our constitution, and it says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, and you won't hear it from mom and dad, and you're not going to have it. We don't want you to not use those words in our home alone. When you're on the baseball field, you can't use them. He could come home and he could say, well, you know, the coach, uh, he's told us he's a really cool coach. Everybody in the dugout can cuss if they want to. He could tell us that. But he knows that even if his coach allows something that his authority, his dad, knows is not allowed, he's got to balance this because he recognizes it doesn't matter what the coach says if it has to do with something allowed by the coach but not allowed by his father. But that doesn't mean that uh, he doesn't run laps when the coach says run laps or do push-ups or whatever the weird things that they do or do more drills. He's got to do that. If... The coach at some point imposes a new rule that before you go out and, and, and play the game, the championship game, everyone has to chew tobacco for half an hour, right? Uh, just, this is all an illustration. I don't think that he's doing any of this. Um, of course, my son now wouldn't just say, I'm not going to do what he allows. Now he has to actually be disobedient to his coach, right? Because he knows his, his dad has said you can't do that. 
you understand that kind of dual authority is not something complicated for a kid. It may be uncomfortable at times, and it may even be uh, difficult and costly at times for him, and it may cost him his reputation among the other players, but that kind of balancing act is not something that needs, you know, lecture after lecture to explain to him how this works, particularly because he already knows and hears from dad from time to time that when it comes to baseball, that's not your life. It's a part of your life. Now, 96%, and these are just rough and dirty numbers I'm throwing out. It's a Mike Fabarisism, but, but let's just say 96% of the New Testament is going to hammer this at us. Be loyal to God. Be faithful to God. Be obedient to God. Follow God. And then about 4% of the New Testament, as you open up the Bible, you look at Titus 3, 1 through 8. You look at passages in, in Peter, several of them, and you look at this passage in Romans 13. You recognize that a lot of the Scripture, or at least you know, a small portion of it, I guess by comparison, is going to tell us that you need to be loyal to, to the coach, to the government, because they're a rightful authority. That authority is in your life because God has determined for it to be, and you are to be a good citizen. Now, just by the preponderance of, of proportionalism here, we have a clear understanding that God does not equate these authorities, even though I live under the authority of my government. We are citizens of heaven. First, I'm a Christian. First, I'm a citizen of the United States. Second. And if I can start to get some of that in perspective, as a kid kind of innately gets in his own family life before he joins the baseball team, it may help to answer some of the more thorny or difficult questions that arise as a Christian in a country under a government that is not living by the same values as God or his kingdom. I must obey my government until obedience to my government makes me disobedient to Christ. I must obey my government, even if taxes get crazy, even if the things that they ask me to do to fill out forms before I can plant a tree in my yard, if it gets nuts, I've got to obey my government. Until obedience to the government and its rules specifically lead me to be disobedient to Christ. We looked at, uh, I don't know, a big uh, idol in, in, in the valley that was erected to Nebuchadnezzar, and, and they said, you got to bow down and worship it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no can't do that. So they arrested him. They heated up the furnace. They said, we're going to throw you in the furnace. They said, fine, throw us in the furnace if you want, but we're not going to do it. They were evangelizing in Acts 4 and 5. And they said, stop evangelizing. Don't do it. Don't make disciples of all the nations. And they said, I'm sorry, we have to. Now that was the clear and simple example. God blesses that kind of civil disobedience, if you want to call it that. But before we go too far with this, let's make sure we clarify what we're saying and what we're not saying. We want our governments to be like a church. They can't be. That's not what they are. They're led by unregenerate people. There is an anti-Christian, anti-God movement on every government of the world, even if they have Christian principles of right and wrong built into their, their founding documents or their law code. Therefore, I can't expect the same things there. And in my mind, I've got to recognize that's just the way a lot of it is. Do I want it to change? Yes. Do I ignore the bad? No. Well, what do I do? Seven things. Jot down these references real quick. Mark 8, 14 and 15. Luke 22, 25 through 27. In both of these passages, Jesus uses the government as an example of what we should not be. My first responsibility is to point out the wrong of the government to the church so that they don't mirror that. He tells them this. Here's an amazing statement from Christ. He tells his disciples, just to mix another metaphor, watch out for the leaven 
of Herod. Herod, he was the Roman leader of the government. In Luke 22, he says, you know, in the, uh, amongst the kings of the Gentiles, they love to lord their authority over people and then call themselves benefactors. What hypocrites. It's not supposed to be that way with you. The government, my first responsibility, is to point out the bad of the government and say, don't be like that, right? Kids, don't be like Congressman Weiner. How about that? Does that help? <laughs> I want to point out that about the, that's responsibility number one. Responsibility number two, as I have opportunity, I want to point out the leaven of the government to the government. I want to point out the evil of the government to the government, Okay? There are plenty of biblical examples of this. How about Luke chapter 3, verses 18 through 20? John the Baptist exhorted the people and preached the good news. Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John the Baptist because of his marriage to Herodias, which was his brother's wife, it was an immoral relationship, and he was reproved for all the other evil things that Herod had done. Now, it doesn't end well for John. He gets his head cut off in chapter 6 of Mark, and he gets thrown in prison in this passage. But he definitely has no problem saying, hey, you're sinning. Or how about Justin Martyr in the first century, at the end of the first century? I love this letter to the Roman Senate. He says to the emperor in the Roman Senate, he says, I give you advanced warning. You will certainly not escape the coming judgment of God if you persist in your injustice. If you want to quote him for your senator or governor or your congressman, fine. You can write that to them. Do it respectfully. It definitely, not only in Christian tradition, it is within the pages of the Christian scripture that there's nothing wrong. It is actually appropriate for you to point out the sin of the government to the government. Number three, to serve in the government. As we've already made the point, I don't need to belabor this, but when Christian evangelists hit people that work for the government, they never gave them a lecture, a call, a command to change their occupation. Whether they were soldiers, centurions who trained soldiers, tax collectors for the Roman IRS, Zacchaeus, Levi, Matthew, you know these people. Cornelius. Even Paul himself is trying to convert King Agrippa II, trying to turn him into a Christian. Now, I know he's under arrest and on a trial, but he doesn't have a problem sharing the gospel. And I guarantee you, if he becomes a Christian, he's not going to say, you've got to quit now. So all I'm saying is some of you are inclined to serve in some level of the government. It can be civil service. It can be governmental service. Nothing wrong with civil service. Nothing wrong with that. So serving in government, great. And some of you are inclined to do that. Have at it. Do it. Stand up for what's right. Be a reasonable, respectable, just servant of the government. Number four, you and I need to set the example for the rest of society. Titus 3, verses 1 through 8 would be a good place to start. Even Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said about salt and light. I am to be an example to the pagan government and the pagan society. When my kid, say my kid, back to the Little League, my kid's coach, let's say, none of this is true, say, hey, kid, you can cuss all you want to in the dugout. My kid should sit there as a good example and never cuss. See what I'm saying? And you and I, they can say, you can do this, you can do that, you can do this if you want. We should say, listen, we're only going to do what the Bible tells us we can and cannot do. So be a good example. That's what Titus 3, 1 through 8 is all about. Number five, you want to see things bettered in our country? You need to evangelize as many people as possible. Because even if you do change laws, we're never going to change behavior unless we change hearts. You want new things to come? In people in our society, you better be sharing the life-changing message of repentance and faith and devotion to Christ. That's what we need to preach. So evangelize as many people as possible. Number six, you should vote. And every time there's an opportunity to vote, you better go in there informed, knowing something about the issues or the people being elected, and vote. Number seven, you need to pray for your kings and for those in authority that what they do 
would end up allowing us to do what we need to do, in this case, to live a dignified life, a quiet life, a godly life. Jeremiah chapter 29. Would you turn to Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7? Here's some instruction to some expatriates who were being taken to Babylon, a pagan government, and they were going to live there for 70 years at least. And here's what God had to say to those expatriates. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, now you're not here amongst your own people in your own country. You're now under the government of a pagan, you know, idol-worshiping king. What am I supposed to do? Well, here's what you're supposed to do. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, go to Lowe's, go to Home Depot, get your house in order. Take wives, rent out the banquet hall, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So get out there and be a good Christian who's also a good citizen. Let's pray. God, these are important issues for us, and I pray they wouldn't just be academic issues of of the past and of history, but that we might recognize that no matter what pressure is placed upon us, that we would think biblically, respond biblically, to be praying, to be responding, to be serving when we're called upon to do so, to do what we can do in our nation, our government, our state, our county, that we might uh, enhance its welfare. We'd like it to go well for our country because when it does, it goes well for us. Let us be focused ultimately and and with the preponderance of our lives and the the majority of our effort on things that will last a hundred, a thousand, and ten thousand years from now. So get us busy about the work of the kingdom while we're faithful and conscientious about being good citizens of our country. I ask that for us that we might grow in Christ and the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ in whose name I pray. Amen. This is Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares, and you just heard a portion of the message called Elections, Activism, and Civil Disobedience. To listen to the complete message online, go to focalpointradio.org. And keep listening because in just a moment, Pastor Mike is coming back with an exciting announcement about our upcoming Focal Point Alaskan cruise. Stick around to find out how you can join him on this exciting trip. Well, today we heard that it is possible to be a good Christian and a good citizen at the same time. And one secret is to act responsibly within the bounds of governmental authority, imperfect as it may be, exercising the freedoms built into the system. That's a healthy alternative to bucking the system, and it allows us to focus on offering the prayer and godly convictions that can shape a society. If you've been listening for a while now, you know nobody preaches the word quite like Pastor Mike. And if you value the articulation of clear and accurate truth through Focal Point, then we invite you to become a valued Focal Point partner. Simply select the option to send a regular gift every month, and in return, you can opt to receive every special resource we feature. You can be part of the vital team that ensures Pastor Mike's studies continue to air in your region without interruption. So sign up to give monthly when you call 888-320-5885 or when you go to focalpointradio.org. And now here's Pastor Mike with a special announcement. 
Hi, Pastor Mike Fabar is here. In the summer of 2024, I'll be teaching the Bible on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. I want you to come with me from August the 4th through August the 11th, 2024. We're going to discover the splendor of God's Word while we explore the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Join us for world-class dining, daily teaching, worship. It'll be an unforgettable experience. So don't wait to book your spot. Visit focalpointministries.org slash Alaska to learn more. Thanks, Pastor Mike. And I encourage you to book your suite today at focalpointministries.org slash Alaska. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Be sure to come back again next time as we continue exploring God's Word right here on Focal Point. This program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.